Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, we're in a series on, uh, on the book of Acts. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, this is our third part in the series. I mean, last week was a lot of fun, and uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a joy for me. I mean, yeah, so that's good. What do I do, Jamal? How do I do this? In front of them. That's it? All right. That's it? Hit it like that? Is it going to stay open like this the whole time? You the man. All right. My guy right there. He did a great job, by the way. Give a hand for him at the MLK walk yesterday. How many of you came out for that? You braved the cold weather and you came out. I don't know. I saw some of you. That was a pretty amazing experience, and I'm going to allude to that in a little while. But here we are. We are in the third week of the book of Acts and how God started. You heard Ted Patron just say how you know, the Spirit of God moved in. And what we saw on Wednesday night was, I mean, man, I'm, I'm just echoing his sentiments. It was an amazing time. I hope you're going to come out this week for the last scheduled one. But let me tell you, we'll, we're going to be having more meetings like this moving forward. We will. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. That's what the church really is, right? And I, I have to hold off because I'm getting into all of this today. That's my whole message about what you just heard. From him, that's our message. So let's just open in prayer. Lord, I'm thankful for this book. Lord, I'm thankful for the, for the model you gave us with, with this early church in the book of Acts and how things exploded. But I'm also thankful, Lord, that the Holy Spirit, Lord, that was poured out at Pentecost can be poured out here for us today that your word says in the last days. Father, we want to see that. We want to see young people and old people have dreams and visions. We want to see you move on your people. Oh, Spirit of the living God, have your way with us today. Rearrange even my program of how I thought this was going to go. Lord, do something. Do something, Lord, in our hearts, not just in our minds. Father, continue to move on us. May people catch the spirit of this. May your people catch the spirit of what you want to say today. Beyond my words, Lord, I ask that a spirit would be caught by City on a Hill Community Church about what community really means. Amen. Amen. That's my heart's cry this week. That's my heart's cry. Well, in uh, many of you probably don't know this face, but in 1831, there was a French diplomat, historian, and political scientist by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. How many of you know the name? Tocqueville, maybe some of you have heard the name before. He wrote a book called Democracy in America. And you see in 1831, he came here to America to tour our prisons, right? Wanted to get, you know, some insight as to what we do here in America. But when he came, he saw some other things and he made some other observations. And this is what he wrote in his book. Ready for this? The defining American trait that he saw was, in his words, extremist individualism, and he said if it was left unchecked, it would spell the abolition of humanity. This is 1831, saints. 1831, a Frenchman comes to the United States, and he sees America as so individualistic, and he says, it's going to be our demise. It's going to lead to our demise. And we saw this. If you keep even moving through history, listen to me. You see us moving through history. This continues up until World War II. And in World War II, how many of you are familiar with this? Here's a picture of the London Blitz in 1940 and 1941. This is when the Nazis 
with their aerial bombardment of London, the London Blitz. And this went on. And here's what's fascinating. There was a Canadian psychologist who did a lot of research and, and looked into this. And this is what he found, and others have replicated this, that when the bombing was taking place, the incidence of depression and anxiety in London and the surrounding areas didn't increase, it actually decreased. When the bombing stopped, that's when depression and anxiety went up. The reason for that was, is that when the bombing was taking place, people had to get together and they came as a community and they had to lean on each other. How cool is that? You know, there's been a lot that's, a lot has been written on this. I'm not your normal preacher. I give you a sociological, psychological. I try to give us a picture of where we are in society. How did we even get to where we are today? Oh, sorry. Camera's not on. I don't even know where it is. Where is it? Over here somewhere? It might even... Nah, I don't have it. Is it over here? Maybe, I, maybe it's sitting over there. Or maybe it's in the office, babe. I don't know. It's not behind me. You want to find it? I don't really care. I'm preaching. So, um, right? I don't care. I'm in the zone. I'm in the zone. Next time, I don't really care. Whatever. If you find it over there, that's great. If not, no worries. So where was I? All right. Well, it's also interesting when you look. There's another... Uh, book that was written. Just stay with me, all right? I'm going to preach in a little bit. Can I teach for a little while, right? I'm going to teach. I'm, this, I'll get you high, right, later on, but you have to know why sometimes. You have to know the why as to why we can be so inspirational sometimes. We have to understand why and where we, you know, where we came from and why we're getting there. Well, this book right here was a seminal book that was written about 20 years ago, right? And it's called Bowling Alone. You love this book. I'm pointing to you back there. You love this book. All right, this is a Harvard psychologist by the name of Robert Putnam, and he wrote this book called Bowling Alone. Now, you may say, well, 20 years ago, at the turn of the 21st century, it is still a book that everyone looks at and goes to. And he talked about, look, look, and I know some people, you look at it, and that were so individualistic, and you know, church attendance has been cut in half since the 1950s. Did you know that? It's been cut in half. And everyone wants to look at it and go, well, it's just because we've become more secular. And I would say to you, no, that is not right. We have not just become more secular because in his book, Bowling Alone, he talks about all types of community organizations have seen a decline in attendance. Where is my beautiful mother-in-law? You do the civic association meeting. How many people show up for that? A lot less than used to show up. How about the Elk Club, the Rotary Club? And he used the concept of bowling. Is anybody in a bowling league so I can make fun of you? I'm kidding. Who's really in a bowling league? You're in a bowling league? Come on, man. Don't be. That's awesome. You're in a bowling league. That's great. I didn't think I'd see anybody in the church in a bowling. But come on, in a church, a church is pretty full today. And there's only a few people in the congregation that are actually in bowling leagues. 50 years ago, how many people you think were in bowling leagues? Who's the bowler that's here? Where is he? He's at the bowling alley. You can't make it up. <laughs> Literally, he's at the bowling alley right now. What are the chances, Jim? What are the chances that your son would be bowling right now? Can you please tell him that I referenced him? He's an incredible bowler, too, by the way. He's not your average bowler. But how about this? You probably, maybe a few of you saw this in the news. Did you hear what happened in the UK? That they have now appointed a minister for loneliness. This just happened. 
a minister for loneliness, they estimate that 20% of the population in England suffers from chronic loneliness. Wow, that's crazy. They wanted Prince Harry and Meghan to, you know, to do that, but they were too busy to come into America because they're smart. Aren't they coming to America? I only reference them because my wife loves them and loves to talk about all that is England in the house. I don't really care, but whatever. I don't want to hear it. I don't care, right? And how about in the United States, right? Did you know that the rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s? 35% of Americans report they are chronically lonely. Only 8% of Americans reported in a recent poll that they had a conversation in the past year with a neighbor. Only 8% of Americans. We have a problem. I can give you more. Let me give you a little more. In 1984, the average American had three confidants. A recent report said that 25% of Americans have zero today. What has happened? Our former Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, in an incredible interview, this was in the, the Har Har uh, Harvard uh, Business Review, the title of the article was Work and the Loneliness Epidemic. This is what the doctor said. He said, during my years caring for patients, this is the line that got me in the article, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Loneliness. George Gallup of the Gallup Poll fame said Americans are among the loneliest people in the world. Study after study, they say being lonely, loneliness is actually worse than someone that smokes 15 cigarettes a day. It's worse. We think obesity and heart disease and we have all these other problems. And let me tell you too, can I talk to it? I don't have a lot of time to talk to this because I've done it a lot in sermons over the course of the past two years, social media. Do you know that we can be in a world where we're surrounded by other people and we feel like we're so connected to other people? We're connected everywhere. I can talk to people all over the world. Then how come the rates of depression are skyrocketing? We are more disconnected than ever before. A new study, West Virginia University and University of Pittsburgh, same exact findings. They said that social media use is linked to more feelings of social isolation, a.k.a. loneliness. There's a problem in society. There's, a, there's another book, and I reference one more book. I did a lot of research and putting this all together. It just kind of comes together. I don't know. It's just the way God gave it to me, right? This is a book I highly recommend. I'm throwing a lot of books at you. The one at the end that you're going to hear about is probably the book that you should read because it's an amazing story. I put it up there. How many of you know the uh, movie uh, Unbroken, the book Unbroken? I'm going to reference something that's gonna, on, the same, on par with that. Um, this is uh, David Brooks. He wrote a book called The Second Mountain. This was written uh, this past year. And this is what was fascinating. He said, in our culture, individualism, the, the, this, this individualistic behavior that we see that's prevalent, it's everywhere, it's pervasive. He said it leads to something called tribalism. All right? Now listen, here's, here's what he's saying. Tribalism is, and tell me you don't see this all over the place in our country, tribalism he calls the evil twin of community that it looks like community. You see, tribalism is people say, this is what we're against. No, no, community is, this is what we're for. Tribalism says, this is what we hate. This is what we want to go after. 
No, community says, this is who we are. This is what we're about. We're a generous people. You can come here and be included. That's what community is. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what your bank account says. It doesn't matter what your zip code says. It doesn't matter about any of that stuff. A community is a place of people that come together. He said, it is love-drenched accountability, too. That's what he called community. Great book. Can't stress it enough. This is a guy, too, who's Jewish, and he's had a real conversion. This guy has encountered and knows Jesus Christ through reading, just started reading the Gospels. This is a man, and you know what? I don't even want to put this guy in a category, but God is using him as a New York Times bestselling author, and he's a writer for the New York Times. Telling you, she'd look at man, look out when God does stuff, right? And the Kanye's and people like this, he's hitting everybody. This guy can hit maybe some people that Kanye can't hit, right? Come on, it's awesome. So that's kind of a picture, right? And again, I, I know you're not used to, if you're maybe new to this church, this is kind of what we do, this is who we are. So we, we, we talk about theology, but we get underneath and look at some of the societal, sociological issues that are at play too. There was another, can I give you this too? There was a uh, psychologist, uh, Dr. Will Miller. This is what he said, and I love this. He said, if you talk to any therapist today, the problems we see mostly are mood disorders, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and social detachment. As blessed as we are as Americans, as prosperous as we are, there's all this depression. So where is it coming from? I'm convinced it's rooted in the loss of, I get, get this, refrigerator rights relationships. Come on now. Come on, saints. I'm preaching. Refrigerator rights relationships. Too many Americans suffer mentally and emotionally because they have too few of these kinds of relationships. So let me ask you here this morning in January 2020, how many refrigerator rights relationships do you have with people that you could walk into their house right now and you can go inside their fridge and you would feel totally comfortable making a bologna and cheese sandwich, right? with gluten-free bread. How many of you would be totally comfortable doing that? Come on, come on, right? How many people would you be comfortable doing that with? You're raising your hands. I don't know what that means. Like what? You're comfortable with somebody else? I don't know whose house you're comfortable with, right? Don't come over to my house later on today and say, I want to see if I have refrigerator rights in the pastor's house. Go to their house, not mine. I'm just kidding. Coming to mine. Yeah, yeah. How about some people, though? You know, Ted talked about the, the, the first century church. Can we look at some people that actually, I think, in, using our vernacular today, using what this psychologist said, I think these people had refrigerator rights in the first century. All right? That's what God told me. He's like, yeah, I want you to tell, I, I think these people in the first century, and let, let me show you a passage. We're in Acts, and I'm going to move around just a little bit. This is what it says, and I started in chapter 3, if you remember, two weeks ago, Right? I want to back up and look at right after Pentecost, right after the Comforter, right after the Holy Spirit, the paraclete is unleashed on the church, right? Jesus has ascended. The Holy Spirit is there, right? And, and, and amazing things start to take place, and it's the birth of the church. Look what it says in 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together, and I underline this, had everything in common. I'll get to that in a second. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now remember, at Pentecost, we said it last, there were 3,000 people, 3,000 at first, that become believers in Jesus Christ. And daily, people are being added to that number. And last week, we hit a home run, by the way. You remember, I, I used Moneyball last week, and you probably weren't expecting that last week. That was a lot of fun. But Wednesday night, we hit a home run. So sometimes you hit a home run, you don't know it. No, you hit a home run when you shared and you came out, right? It was such a living meeting, right? Yes. Get an amen, like two amens for that. That's all right. Here's my next passage. Now look at this. Look at the similarity. Two chapters later, after Peter and John, the guy that we, we, we were with for two weeks, the lame man that was outside the temple, right? Two weeks he's been with us. We're finally letting him go. He's going home now. And look what it says in chapter 4, at the end of the chapter. Peter and Joe. What happened to Peter again last week? You remember? What happened to Peter? He was put in jail, right? And that's when I used that story for Moneyball. He didn't know while he was in jail, 2,000 people came to come to know Christ. He hit a home run and didn't even know it, right? And then all the believers were in one heart and mind. So Peter and John got let out of prison. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they had to let them go. They were kind of in a quandary here. What do we do? We can't keep these guys. What did they do? They're talking about Jesus, but the people want them released. So they were kind of stuck. They released the people. Or they released the two. All the believers, look at this again, were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they showed everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in, the all, in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Can that happen again today? How cool would that be to happen today, that there would be no needy people, that you wouldn't need anything? All right, I'm just, I, I, thought you'd, I thought that we'd get a better response from that, but we didn't. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. It is awesome, Mike. I'm glad you appreciate how awesome it is. Woo! Pretty awesome. Can I ask us a question? Because you probably never thought about this. You know, Pastor Linda threw a book at me, and it's a guy from, I don't know, the 1980s. And she said he's probably pretty weird. The guy's absolutely brilliant. You ever notice some people that are so brilliant, they're a little eccentric, a little odd? right? Socially, they maybe have some, you know, trouble. So this guy, Gene Edwards, how many of you maybe older Christians, you've been around for a while, you know the name Gene Edwards? Well, she threw a, she threw a book at me, and just the spirit of what the guy wrote about the early church really hit me, and I kind of just made this my own. You know what's interesting? What do you think they did after this? So you have, listen to me, you have at least 5,000 males that have become followers of Jesus Christ, and they are congregating around this place called Solomon's Porch, all right? What do you think they're doing? The Are they talking about, hey, hey, listen, this is how you get your best life now, right? That's what they, you think that's what they were talking about? Come here, here are the eight steps. Here's how you fight sin. This is what you're supposed to do with it. Do you think that's what they were doing? They were reading scrolls, right? Hebrew scrolls. Come on, they, right? The church, right? They, we read the Bible. Isn't that what they were doing? No? Are you sure? Some of you are like, I don't really know. What do you think they were doing? Come on, what do you think they were doing? What do you think they were talking about? What were the, the apostles are here. What are they talking about to the people? There's thousands of them. They're talking about, who? Who's that? They're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the resurrection. 
I want you to understand, when this is taking place and the people are together, I see people milling about and that they would gather eventually at Solomon's porch here. This is the best picture I could find, an artist's rendering of what it probably looked like. And we see the apostles that are there. This is what I see in my mind. I see times of spontaneous worship and praise. You heard before when Ted said it, the last two meetings on Wednesday night, they were very different. This wasn't a time where they came and said, a meeting is starting at 10 o'clock and we're going to have three songs and then we're going to have a now we're going to do an offering and then there's going to be a message no there were times that there was spontaneous praise and worship and people got an idea and they saw the magnitude of who God was how majestic God was and who Jesus Christ was and they just started to praise him and worship him are you kidding me I'm not done then there are times when they were probably in rapt attention as the apostles talked about what it meant to be a follower of Christ This is what it looks like. And I bet there were times where there was prayer that would knock our socks off. Spontaneous prayer. You need prayer for your body? Oh, you need prayer for what you got going on? And there was prayer. And people, it was a move of God. They weren't sitting up there just talking about all these things that we think and we get so religious sometimes. What do they do? And they just sat there. No, this was incredible. The apostles were moved. And you know what? What do you do? You said it. You got the right answer. You people got the right answer. You said they talked about Jesus. What would you talk? Oh, by the way, can I tell you this too? Because some of you that get offended, that oh, they didn't read the Hebrew scrolls. Let me tell you why, because I know the history of it. Did you know that over 80% of the people in the first century were illiterate? Over 80%. Did you know that a town was lucky if they had one copy of the Hebrew scrolls? The painstaking process to handwrite a scroll. And where do you think the scrolls would actually be? They would be in synagogues. Can I ask you a question? Do you think the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues, would be okay with these new followers of Jesus Christ, followers of the way? Here, you can have the scrolls. Why don't you take them? No! They talked about what it was like to be with Jesus. They talked about what it was like to live with him for 18 hours a day for over three years. It would be like somebody doing something else. It would be like somebody going to Mars, right? And somebody goes to Mars in a rocket ship. And then they come back and they're being interviewed. What was it like? What was it like? And the, the astronaut says, let me tell you about rocket fuel. What? I don't care about rocket fuel. What's it like on Mars? What did you see? They talked about what it was like to be with Jesus when he performed miracles, when he walked on water, when he takes the, 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 the widow's son, all the issues, all the miracles, all the situations, and they talked about what it was like to be with Jesus. That's what the first century church, this is what the church was. And nobody talks about it. It was the first time I really saw somebody, an author, that kind of got into it and really gave you the feel. And I'm trying to give you the feel. I'm trying to convey to you what it was like. People weren't on this eight-hour work shift. I got to punch the clock. People did work. But when they were done with their jobs, they said, I'm going to the temple courts. I'm going to go hang out at Solomon's porch because there's a move of God here. And I want to find out more about this Jesus. And I want to be part of this community. You know where else they met? They met in houses. 
What was it like in houses? They would probably stay up. I'm imagining they stay up till the middle of the night. You know what there was in the house? There was laughter and there was joy. Joy. Smile, those people that come on Wednesday nights. Smile. Nothing's wrong, right? You heard Pastor Linda say that the last two weeks. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Come on Wednesday, you'll find out. Smile. Joy is the serious business of heaven. C.S. Lewis said it. You can't understand God until you understand he's the happiest being in the universe. Chesterton said that. You can't understand God. Let me say it again because you didn't get it. Until you understand he's the happiest being in the entire universe. Yes. Joy. I see them laughing. Don't you even see the apostles laughing at each other? Come on. Don't you see that? All the issues and all the situations that they went through. We, we get so religious and we get so serious about church. There should be a joy that emanates from our lives that people see. There should be a sense, and I'm not just talking happiness like the world knows it, but the joy of the Lord is our strength as we go out there. And that's what these Christians had, and that's what was going on at Solomon's porch. It wasn't a traditional service. The laughter, and you know, can I tell you, it's, it's MLK Day tomorrow. I don't know how many, we mentioned that before. Can I give us an MLK quote? Yeah. All right, Dr. Martin Luther King, this is what he said. Tell me this isn't powerful, and tell me this is not prophetic. He said, if today's church, he said this 50 plus years ago, if today's church does not recapture the spirit of the early church, it will be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Can I just change that? It'll be dismissed as an irrelevant social club for the 21st century. That's what we're trying to do as a church. We're trying to get back to that. You know what community is? Community is a place. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. Did you hear what I said? I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. God's politics. God doesn't care. It's not about our cultural preferences, what we want culturally. No, it's about we gather. Think about the difference. Just look around the room for a second. Think about how different we all are in here. Think about how many people you would never know in this place if it was not for Jesus Christ and what he did on that cross. That's what we're gathered around, y'all. Can I tell you? Can I just preach a little bit? Can I tell you what an experience it was yesterday to be at the MLK? I, I hadn't been there the prior two years. So I heard about it and didn't know that this even took place where they had the I have a dream speech and I want to go and give you a lot of the history, but I don't have time for all that. You may know some of it. I probably know more than you because I've had to teach this stuff for 20 plus years. I've read books on this and I love it. He's one of my heroes. If he's not one of your heroes in the Christian faith, something's wrong with you. Was he a perfect human being? No, but there was no one. Nobody was perfect but Christ. Nobody, Right? And it was so interesting to me, and I sat there, and I, I brought my oldest son, and I'm, I just, you know, sometimes there are moments that are indelibly etched in your mind. Well, as we were walking, and I was annoyed, Jamal and I were kind of annoyed because people were talking the whole time, as, and I'm like, can we just listen to the speech? I want to hear the speech because, to me, it's the greatest speech given in the, in the 20th century, the greatest speech. You know, it, uh, listen, I put it right up there with Lincoln's second inaugural, too. I know Gettysburg gets more attention. Whatever. Anyway, stop, history teacher. All right, so... So listen to me, though, to be standing there and my son looked up at me and I, I just like at the moment that I was like, and he saw that dad was intently listening to the speech and God was telling me, it's amazing what we hand, we hand our perspective down to our kids. 
you're handing your perspective of life down to your kids. And some people are passing down, we're handing hate to our kids in this culture. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. And Christ was all-inclusive, right? And if Christ was all-inclusive, he hung on that cross, then we can't say Jesus' name. And look at Jesus, who hung on that cross with arms open wide. And you know what we do then? Sometimes we stand like this. You can't stand like this when Christ was like this on the cross. Come on, church. Come on, church. We are meant to bridge. We are to be a bridge in the community. We are to be a people that bring healing to this community. To see Jamal as a leader, right, in a church, and to see him as a leader in the school to get up and talk about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. I'll never forget it. To march, black, white, old, young. That's what the church is. And you know what? Our kids are watching us. Our kids are watching how we handle conversations, explicit, implicit. They are watching everything that we're doing. What are we handing them? What kind of perspective are we really handing them, church? So important. And we honor today. We honor Dr. King and what he did. Can you, I mean, that speech... Can I get you just a little bit? It's not, in my, it's not part of the, really the sermon, right? It's, it's appropriate, right? Do you want to hear a little, just a little bit? Just a little insight? Did you know he had a problem connecting with the audience when he first started speaking? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the greatest orators ever in the history of the world, he had a problem when he first got up there and he was having, I know what it's like as a speaker sometimes, you have a hard time maybe connecting with your audience. But from, like, you, you feel good when that guy, the greatest, right? Felt that way, it makes you feel a little bit better when you're just a little peon and you just speak in your little church. This guy had a hard time connecting and it wasn't until he started to go where there was a gospel singer. Women were not allowed to get up and talk, but there was a gospel singer by the name of Mahalia Jackson and Mahalia Jackson says, yo, Martin, give him the dream. Give him the dream. And his whole speech is imbued with the Bible. It's all the Bible. Why aren't you clapping? Are you serious? Why are you so uptight? Why are you so stuffy? If you're not going to clap for that, I don't know what you're going to clap for. Some of you, man, you're so religious. I'm so, I don't care. I'm sorry. I'm not, talking to, I'm not talking about your walk. I'm talking about somebody that came to bridge the gap. I'm talking about somebody that talked about racism and discrimination and prejudice. A guy that when they did the autopsy on his body, he wasn't even 40 years old. He had the heart of an 80-year-old man from everything that he went through. The pain, the suffering. He understood what the cross was and he had a dream. And you know what? That was God's dream first. All people, that we wouldn't judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Man, back to your sermon. I'm sorry, man, but I just get, I get fired up with that. Can I tell you, though, what we do? And can I get back to the first century church? When I'm done, I'm done today. I don't know when I'm done. When I'm done, I'm done. Okay. All right? Now, listen, the first century church, listen to me. I'm just free. I'm free today. I, feel, I, I felt liberated. When I got up at 2 in the morning, I just felt it. I just felt that the spirit was moving. I said, you know what? This is great. I don't care. However long I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk today. Now, listen, this is a, this is a, when did I get this? During the week? You know where I'm going. When did I get this? Out of nowhere. From a game that Jameson was playing. I don't even know. Something that my sister gave me. It was an amazing gift and she's not here, but I got to tell her about it anyway. Right? You know what we do? 
talking about the first century church and that they were a real community. You know what we do? Megan and I had the uh, fortunate opportunity to go away. And this is the first time and probably the last time this has ever happened. In two weeks, we were in four different countries. Now, for us, I don't, I'm not a traveler. I could sit home. She subjects me to my one trip to Disney, right, every single year. I'm cool with that. I'll hang out with Mickey for one week a year, right? But this past summer, in a two-week period, this guy, I'm very regimented. I like to do the same. How many of you know what I'm talking You're the same way, maybe, right? You like your routine, right? So we're in four different countries. And I was thinking about it. You know you got to bring a passport, right, when you go to a country, right? I brought, I brought a passport in today. And you go to a country, and what do they do? They stamp your passport. The first thing you probably do is you exchange some currency. You get some of the money there. Then maybe you hang out with the natives. You want to see what kind of food they have, right? Don't you want to see what kind of food they have? Man, I ate. I ate. Did I eat, girl? I ate a lot. Man goes, he ate a lot. And you eat some of the food. What do you do also when you're in another country? You visit some of the museums, maybe? You see some cathedrals. We were in Scotland. I was hanging out with Robert the Bruce and William Wallace shooting lightning bolts out of his... Oh, I'm in church. Can't finish it. But, but right? And we are... That's bad. I know. I know, Christian. I can't do it as well as you can. But listen, it's so cool, right? And many of you, you've been to another country and you've experienced this. You get a passport. But listen, I don't leave my heart in the country that I go visit. Follow me. I don't leave my heart there. I, we take pictures and we have memories and you buy something on memento or memento, things that you want to take home as, to remember what your trip was like, right? You with me? Yeah. Can I tell you though what many of us are doing in the church today? We are treating the church like we're tourists. We come into the church and it's like we have passports and we come in for a little while and we sit here for an hour and a half, maybe two hours, and we sing some songs. Maybe we'll go to a group. Maybe we'll do something. And we just stamp my, stamp my passport. And I'm sorry, church, but I'm telling the truth because most preachers on TV don't talk like this. This is a problem in the Western church. We have a lot of tourist-friendly churches. That is not what God's plan was in the first century, and it's not his plan in the 21st century. We are to be a people that have real community. M. Scott Peck says, not pseudo-community. The psychologist, he's talking about where you're not really known, you can come in, but real community is where people actually really know you. It's not, you know how many people, it's amazing to me. How many people are like tourists, and they come into church, and they race out when the meeting ends? A lot of you, I've never even, I don't even know who you are because you're not here long enough. And you race out, you race out, and then you leave. I would love to get to know you and maybe other people would love to get to know you. I'm not mad about it. I'm just upset for you because I think there's so much more for you as a person, as a Christian, that you could be part of a community and you could really be known and you can let down your mask. I think that's what God wants for us. Come on, church. That's what God wants for us. <laughs> you know, this, this, I had a lot of fun with this during the week. I probably should preach on this, I don't know, down the road. But let me put this passage of scripture up. Can I go back to what it was like to be with the 12 apostles? Can I just show you a verse? And God threw me into this during the week. And I was like, you know what? I have to put this, I have to put this in. Jamal, I don't know this thing. Um, you can, hit, can you hit that for me? I don't know. I, however you do this. It's just saying 1120. I don't know. Could you hit that for me, Mayor? Make, make the next slide go. Jamal know how to do that? Am I stuck? Jamal left. Okay, great. So I, I need a Bible. Give me Matt. I, I need a Bible. I have to go to... 
You could just hit it. You could just hit it. Yeah, John, go ahead. Go to, the, uh, go to Matthew 10, please. Next slide. Thank you. Appreciate it. Saved me. Brother, big brother right back there. How appropriate, though. Watch, because I'm going to get him right now. I'm going to get big brother right now. I'm going to get you right now. He's like, oh, great. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now, look, these are the name of the 12 apostles. You've probably read this a thousand times, but you probably never really got the, like, the full gist of this. I don't have time to give you the full, all the polarities in this, but look, it says, first Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the sons of thunder, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less. How would you like that? There's one James, that's James, right? Son of thunder, and then there's this guy, I'm James the Less. Hey, I'm James the Less, right? Thanks, I appreciate that. Thanks, Jesus, really appreciate that about you, okay? James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Can I just give you a little taste of what this was like for community? Do you realize what Jesus had to deal with when he put these guys together? Can I, can I, you ready for this? Ready? Now, I underline here Matthew, the tax collector. So many of you probably know this. As a tax collector, you worked for the Romans. So the Jewish people despised you. The acrimony they had towards you, they hated you. Now, I also underline Simon the Zealot. Why do I underline that? Because here you have Matthew, the tax collector. They're in the same small group community. Think about this. Same small group where Matthew, the tax collector, the IRS agent, is in the same exact group as the guy that is a zealot. What is a zealot? A zealot was a guy that was ultra conservative, believed in guerrilla warfare, and would go up to any unsuspecting Roman soldier, and they believed in using violence. So Matthew, the tax collector who works for the Romans, and the guy who hates the Romans, Jesus says, I have a great idea. I'm going to put both of you in the same group. What was morning coffee like? <laughs> hey, traitor. Hey, murderer. Can you imagine what it was like? This is just one, one polarity in the whole group. Can I give you a little bit more, right? You probably missed that when you read this. How about, and, and also, by the way, who, who handled the money? Judas handled the money. Why didn't they let the IRS agent handle the money? It's kind of funny. Come on, it's funny. I thought it was funny as I looked at it. I'm like, why didn't they let the IRS guy handle it? They don't, whatever, they didn't trust him, right? Because he worked, he worked for Rome. How about, let me give you a little, how about Philip? Ready for Philip? Now, watch this. Philip was what was known as a Hellenist. You're like, what the, what the heck does that mean? A Hellenist was somebody that was of Jewish descent, but you did not live in Israel. You weren't raised in Israel. So you spoke Greek. The people in Israel, what they speak? Aramaic. He would have been considered, put in our vernacular, he would have been what we call a priester. Somebody that maybe went to church, he's, uh, the culture is really important to him. He's the kind of guy when Jesus comes in, he's got the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy, right? That's the kind of t-shirt he has. He smokes a cigarette and is drinking something and doesn't understand why Simon the Zealot is so mad because Simon the Zealot, it was all about rules and your hair had to be a certain length and women, your clothes and everything, you had to follow all of the rules and Jesus' plan to change the world is to put people like this in the same group. Community is messy. I just, listen, I could go on. I could give you more of this. I'm studying. I'm like, I'm just going to pick out a couple things, however the spirit leads. I mean, how about Andrew? Hey, listen, brother, big brother back there. Yo, ready? How would it be? He's my older brother, right? So imagine he's Simon. How come Simon gets the name? What about Andrew? 
Where's my nickname? <laughs> do you ever think of that? He never got a nick. Jesus, uh, by the way, do you have a nickname for me? Have you thought of one yet? You, you think this is like, no, come on. You're telling me that dude wasn't wondering why he didn't get a nickname? Come on. It's true. I know. I was there. <laughs> but you, I mean, really, I, by the way, Judas is the one, can I tell you? Judas is the one out of all of them that would have followed all the rules. When you look at his background, he is the one that would have been, if just looking at the surface, judging a book by its cover, he is the least likely guy that you would have thought would have betrayed Christ. And you probably never heard that before. Yeah. What? That's how it goes. Okay. Life lesson right there. That's how it goes. But isn't that amazing? He, he takes this mishmash group and he puts them together from the cultural topography of first century Israel. And he says, you are going to be the guys. No, no, no. Can I just, can I, this is what I was thinking about too. This is akin to, ready for this? Who's into politics? I'm not a big politics guy. I had my cousin help me. I had my cousin help me on this, right? So get mad at him if you don't like the LSU. No, I'm kidding. I'm like, Keith, what's a really good example? He's much more into politics. But I was just thinking I had to do it. This would be like putting in a small group, ready? This would be like taking President Trump and putting President Trump with Chuck Schumer and AOC in a small group and saying, hey, listen, guys, for three years, we're going to be together and we're going to be a happy little family and you're going to get along and you're going to love each other, right? You're going to do... Can you imagine the bitterness and the hatred? Now multiply that times 10. That's what it was like for the, first, for the, for the, for the 12. And we never, you probably ne we never look at it that way, but that's what it was really like. That's what it was like because community sometimes is messy. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, can I just go there in his book, Life Together, because I was reading it again during the week. He's a guy that was killed. He tried to, he was part of an assassination plot to take out Hitler. Yes, he had a secret seminary. He, I, could, I could go on and on. I mean, Eric Metaxas wrote a great book about his life. He's one of my heroes in the faith. But he says, you know what about community? We get so disillusioned that we think community is supposed to be something that's not really messy. And he says, until that's broken and until that's eradicated, until that's shattered, and we realize, like this group that Jesus puts together, that's what community is with all of our foibles and all of our weaknesses and all of our issues. We bring that all together that's the community of Christ man I'm talking a lot so I gotta hurry up I gotta hurry up I told you before I didn't care but what time is it by the way can you can you give me like 10 minutes all right now please hit the next slide I, again we don't know how to use this so maybe somebody can figure this out wait maybe it's me wait maybe it's me here it is I got it Oh, by the way, that was cool. I thought that was a cool picture of, of the disciples seeing that. How much, can I ask you a question first before I get into my story? How much time do you think they spent on boats? How much time do you think the disciples spent with Jesus on boats? That's why I love this picture. I mean, they, they spent, we were at the Sea of Galilee. I mean, I was there and that's all we, I couldn't stop thinking about it when we went to Israel. Thinking about all the time these guys spent on boats talking and can you imagine all the conversations? The funny, think about the laughter that Jesus had with his followers, with his 12 the conversations. We just think and we get all serious and we read what Jesus is saying, right? The, the letters in red. We, we, we get all serious, but think about how much fun and how much joy Jesus had with these 12 and teaching them. Well, I want to I give you another story about some guys in the boat. This is, let me, let me tell you, I told you in the beginning, this is, without a doubt, now I'm a, I like to read, you know that. This is one of the greatest books I have ever read, ready for this JP, in my entire life. This is on par with Unbroken, the book. They are making a motion picture about this story. Are you ready for me to tell some of this story? Yeah. 
You ready for this? Because this is the ultimate story of community and teamwork that I have seen in some time. And I can't believe it just hit me this week in the middle of the week. And I said, how, I said to myself, how come I've never used this in a sermon? Well, I'm using it today. Well, The Boys in the Boat was a number one New York Times bestselling book written by a guy named Daniel, Brown, uh, Daniel James Brown. It chronicles the story of a rowing team. Now, this rowing team, follow this, is from the University of Washington, the state of Washington on the West Coast. If you know anything about rowing, rowing is like usually the schools that are good. It's, it's an aristocratic sport. Like think aristocracy, think Princeton, think Yale, think Harvard, right? Those kinds of schools, it's the Ivy League schools that dominate. It's the kids that have money. They've been trained to do this their entire lives, right? Well, what's interesting about this book is it chronicles a rowing team that comes from the University of Washington. Now, this book is written, you know, it's a true story. These kids are living during the Great Depression. And you get into the main character in the beginning of the book, his parents, his whole family left him in his house. They had no, he had no food, he had nothing. His family left him, deserted him during the Great Depression. This kid manages to go to college to the University of Washington where he joins up with other kids that wanna be part of a team. Now they're all different. Listen to me, community is not uniformity. It is not we dress the same, we talk the same, no. Unity is different. Unity is we have the same goal, but we're allowed to look at the world differently, right? There's a difference. So here are these guys, and they train, and what's amazing is they're eventually going to make their way to the 1936 Olympics, where they're going to go up against some of the greatest teams in the world. They've defeated every team in the country. Now, I don't have all the time in the world because I'm not doing the story total justice, but they defeat every team from the East Coast. They defeat all these teams that are supposed to make it. This group of kids, one kid's from a, a, a lumber yard, one kid's from a regular farm, one kid's from a shipment. I mean, places that you don't find kids that get involved in crew. They're not supposed to do this. And it's 1936. And it's, the, it's the, the Berlin Olympics. And this is, what I found, this is what I found amazing about rowing. How many of you know anything about rowing? I know you know a lot about rowing. Yes, some of you know a lot about rowing. Get this. Physiologists, in fact, have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll, get this, as playing two basketball games back-to-back, -back, and it exacts that toll in about six minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, this is incredible. Now, you have to understand, too, this is Hitler, right? This is the Third Reich. This is before the outset of World War II. And Hitler wants to show off the superiority of the Aryan race. And he wants to show off the supremacy of his German athletes. And rowing was one of his favorite events. It's one of the top events. He's going to be there for this because he wants to see. Because he said this was a picture of what his country was like. As every man is on and they're rowing together and they're synchronized. It's poetry in motion. And he wants to be there for this. And so here we are at the Olympics. And this is a picture of the actual team in their uniform. They cross the Atlantic. These are kids that have only looked at rivers and lakes for their entire lives. And here they are. They're crossing over the Atlantic Ocean. And they get to Germany. And here it is for the event. And there is Hitler. You can see, right? Everybody is saluting him. And here are the men in their boat. These are the Ger I, I couldn't believe I found this picture. These are the Ger this is the German team with swastikas 
on their jerseys swastikas on their jerseys as they're rowing and Hitler thinks and Hitler thinks this is going to be it he's on the grand stage he's going to show the world and secretly behind the scenes he's ready to take on the rest of the world and go to war but nobody knows it yet at this time and these rowers this American team comes in and nobody even gives them a shot nobody thinks they're going to win and get this the coxswain, who is the stroke oarsman, the coxswain, that was you, right? That is the person that has to synchronize the rest of the boat. You following me? So the eight rowers in the boat, that person, got, this guy got so sick. He had respiratory illnesses. He always had a proclivity to get sick. He was so sick that the coach said, you can't race. You're done. You're going to have to get better. We're going to have to use one of the alternates, the two alternates that they brought. The team stood up to the coach and said, we will not race unless he's on the boat. Huh. Team, these guys had traveled. They worked for 4,000. They traveled 4,034 miles of practice on, the, on Lake Washington, many times in the middle of the night. Gale force winds below zero, rain, sleet, snow. They didn't care. They were a community and they worked together. They had different strengths and they had different weaknesses. But it was when they all coalesced together and they came together that this was a bond that couldn't be broken. So the race, so the race is gonna start, right? The coxswain is there. He's like he's he's on like his deathbed. They get this guy out, he's in the boat. The Germans, as you could expect, you know what they did with the Americans? They gave them the worst lane in the race, and they put them where the headwind was the choppiest, where the strongest, and the water was the choppiest. They gave them the worst spot, and of course, who do you think they got, got the best spot? The Germans. They were so far off on the side, and there was, it, it was a little noisy, they didn't even hear the gun go off. And the Italian team and the German team, the two best teams in the world, got out to huge head starts. But they were, the Americans weren't rattled because they were used to rowing in very inhospitable conditions. And they started and they went out and at first they were flailing. But once they got their groove and once they got their swing and once everyone got together, there was no team in the entire world that was going to beat them. And they won the gold medal. It is the greatest story that 95% of you in this room have never heard before. What do you think it was like? Take that, Hitler. You think your boys are superior? It was almost a prophetic message that don't you worry. In 1941, when the Japanese come a knocking and they come at Pearl Harbor, you're going to wake the sleeping giant and America's going to get involved and it's going to change the whole complexion of the war. Amazing story. So they went, can I give you a quote? This is my favorite quote from the book. Oh, I love this. I could give you a lot, but this is my favorite. Good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to get to, someone to pick a fight. Don't you love that? They had fights. These guys coming together. It wasn't like, hey, buddy, let's just row together. And we row. It took time. Someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. No other sport demands and rewards the complete abandonment of the self the way that rowing does. Great crews may have men or women of exceptional talent or strength, but they have no stars like the church. 
There are no stars in the church, only Jesus Christ. The team effort, the perfectly synchronized flow of muscle, oars, boat, and water, the single, whole, unified, and beautiful symphony that a crew in nation motion becomes is all that matters, not the individual, not the self. Why don't we, Saints, why don't we stand up? This was a, why don't we stand up because we're going to, music team, why don't you come up? This was a, a symphony of swinging blades. Do you realize that's what the church is supposed to be? We're supposed to be a symphony of swinging blades. Did you hear that? I almost want a boat here. I, I want a boat somewhere up here. I didn't do it, but you know how I think. I want a boat. I want us to see a picture of what it looks like to be in community. This quote, all differences, someone to make peace, someone to pick a fight. It's hard and community, you know what community can be? It can be messy. And progress sometimes isn't always pretty. Did you hear me over here? Progress isn't always pretty. Do you realize this is the family when Jesus brought those, the, the, the disciples together, it was messy. Stop acting like everything's supposed to just be so easy. It's not easy sometimes. But you come out. I saw this past Wednesday, I saw a group of brothers and sisters that were rowing, and it was poetry in motion. And that's God's dream for the church. If I had to deliver one message about the church, this is it. This is God's goal. This is God's dream in the midst of it. Church, I'm begging you. I'm imploring you. I'm not guilting you. I just don't want you to miss out on what we were all created for, to be known in a community. When people got up and they shared, where's Melanie? Melanie, how long have you been a Christian? A couple of months. She got up, touched. I mean, it was unbelievable. She touched my heart. Touched us. Hey. Do you know there's a book in the Bible called Obadiah? Would you even know that? No, right? But you got up on, on, on that night and you talked about what God is doing in your life and it ministered to everybody. Stop acting like you have to have all the answers. Stop acting like you have to know everything. It doesn't matter what you, I don't pray good enough. I don't, you just come and you share about what God, what God's doing in your life and you watch how you'll be blessed. My brother-in-law got up. My brother-in-law who's not here, so I'll embarrass him. He got up. Any of you in the Longwood community heard what happened over the past couple of weeks? And he talked to it. And he gave a very personal story about my nephew. He walked into a classroom and my nephew just happened to be there and he said his name for the first time. And we didn't even know my nephew knew how to say his name. And now we got a kiss from God. And now God kissed us and all of us as a family. Do you understand? We're a family church. We're a family. We're not to be Taurus. We're not Taurus. We're not Taurus. We just come in and out and whatever. We don't really care. And we don't get involved. And nobody ever knows us. That's not what this church is about. That's not what the foundation is. That's not how it was built. That's not God's dream for the church here. And it's not God's dream for the church at large. Hear my heart, church. I love you. I just, there's more for us. Come on, worship team. Why don't we just sing? There's more for us. There's a lot more for us as a church. And I'm excited to see because the, the word this year is release. We're seeing it in our own lives, in my family's life. We're seeing it. Are you seeing it yet in your life? Because if you haven't, you're going to see it. This is the year of release in your life. This is the year the Holy Spirit wants to release things. 
where you feel stagnant, you feel like it's the same old thing, this is the year, and I speak that over you. So come on, just start singing. I'm speaking that over you as we sing this song and praying that over you as one of the leaders in this church that God would could start right now that he would release things in your life. Healing in your, you need healing in your body that that would be released. You need issues, you have stuff going on in your marriage, you have stuff going on at your job, you have stuff going on with your kids and your kids are far from God. This is the year of release. Yeah. And we are, as, as Ted said at the Wednesday meeting too, you should be taking the table. I take the table now every day. I've been taking the table every single day. I can't take it enough. You can't take it enough. We should be taking the table and looking to God and seeing what God does. It's going to be an explosion, I'm telling you, church. I can't wait to hear about some of the when I walk through. There it is. One step. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.